Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Throughout the long run of this pandemic, we've been running episodes to keep you, our listeners, informed about the latest changes in the emerging science of COVID-19, treatments appropriate to it, and public health responses available for dealing with it. As the country has gone through a substantial third wave of the virus, and as hospitals, especially in the southeastern United States, are coming dangerously close to capacity, we thought it was the right time to have another conversation about this topic, and particularly on what looks like it will emerge as the new normal in the wake of the Delta variant. Here to discuss this with me today is Dr. Susan Phillip. She is the health officer for the city and county of San Francisco. I wanted to talk with her in particular because San Francisco's COVID response is in many ways a model for major American cities. Nearly 80% of the eligible population is fully vaccinated there. Just last week, San Francisco made news by becoming the first big city in the U.S. to require proof of vaccination to get into restaurants, gyms, recreation centers, or any event at all with more than 1,000 people. Dr. Phillip wields the power to write health orders for the city. She's been at the front lines of determining the right policy responses to the challenges of the current moment. Dr. Phillip, thank you so much for being here. I'm really looking forward to delving deeply into the complex policy questions that you're managing every day in your, your very important job. To start the conversation, I thought we should try to just do some level setting on the state of play of the science, recognizing that this is a moving target and that science is not an exact science when it's constantly getting 
data at, at every given moment. But I want to start by asking you about the Israel data that seemed to suggest the need for booster shots, at least for people 60 and over, and potentially for more people, and how you think about that question of boosters interacting with the broader question of the different variants, Delta and and beyond. Thank you. And thank you very much for having me today to, to speak with you. So, you know, the, the news coming out of Israel and science just recently that shows that a proportion of their hospitalized patients are, are actually fully vaccinated is concerning. And I think that goes along with the data that CDC and other agencies in the U.S. have shared that really is um, more of the, the step before that, looking at immunologic response and seeing that decline over time in some of these post, post-approval studies of people that have been vaccinated. And I think those together are leading to this conversation about boosters and when we do those in the United States and, and what that looks like. And that, of course, raises a whole set of other questions about the timing of doing that as opposed to getting first doses to as many people as possible. But, but that data seems to be increasingly clear that over time, there does seem to be a decrease antibody response, immune response, that at least in in Israel, such a very highly vaccinated country, we're seeing translate into some cases and certainly hospitalizations in some of their population. And the reason I'm asking about that is that if it were not for this, it would be possible to frame the discussion, rightly or wrongly, by saying, well, look, as soon as we can get as large a number of people as possible vaccinated, we can take on board that variants aside, we're just going to get back to normal. And then what we're basically debating is how fast, how slowly, what's the appropriate step. But it may be that this data suggests that it's not going to be as simple as that, that we're going to have to have rolling vaccinations, even for those who are vaccinated, in order to avoid substantial amounts of of breakthrough infection. So seen through that lens, now let's turn to sort of the incredible complexity that is your day-to-day life with the judgments that you have to make. Where do you currently stand in San Francisco on public places and access to those public places? Well, in San Francisco, we do know that, as everywhere, that vaccination is going to be the key, if not to getting back to full normalcy, at least to getting to a place where fewer people are getting infected and we're preserving the ability of our health system to take care of people that need care for anything, COVID-19 or or otherwise. So in San Francisco, as of uh, Friday, we have a health order that went into effect that requires that in indoor settings where food or drink are served or in any type of fitness establishment, gyms, other recreation facilities, if they're indoors, people have to show proof of a full vaccination to access those spaces. And we also have that in place for any gatherings that are of a thousand people or more. So these are some of the ways in which, you know, we have a very high vaccination rate in San Francisco, but these are ways in which we want to encourage uh, others to get vaccinated in order to access these spaces that we know are higher risk. Throughout the pandemic in the United States and worldwide, we've seen that these indoor spaces are among those that are highest risk for transmission. What led you to the conclusion, and I'm sure this is a complex conclusion that includes both scientific elements and and policy judgments, that places that don't primarily serve food and drink, like workplaces, for example, would not be logically included in this current round of orders? 
you know, early on and throughout the pandemic, some of the news that came from the CDC, from the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, uh, which is their uh, journal the CDC puts out, really showed in, in rigorous case control studies where people are interviewed after they become positive, what their activities may have been in the weeks leading up to their testing positive, and then compared to a group of people that tested at the same time but tested negative, really showed that the areas that I mentioned, restaurants, bars, gyms, were among those most associated, statistically associated with, with becoming positive. These sites are places that, by definition, people are removing their face coverings, they are in contact with other people outside of their household, and so there are more aerosols, more virus particles in the air in restaurants, in bars. Um, you add into that in bars and some other restaurants, it's loud, it's crowded, people are leaning in uh, closer to each other. And also with you know the addition of, of drinking and alcohol, people are talking louder, maybe more uh, disinhibited, talking to other people. So that explains a little bit about why the risk might be there in bars and restaurants. For fitness establishments, those have also been associated in several studies from across the country in, um, in outbreaks and in increases. And there, it's really, again, recognizing it's a respiratory aerosol-transmitted virus that people's respiratory rates are up, they're breathing heavily, they're in an enclosed room with others, and that's, uh, that's why we see that elevated risk. Let's talk about the mechanisms that you might use to check that people have been vaccinated. As I understand it, right now, you would accept the physical vaccination card I'm imagining you would also accept someone's picture on their phone of their vaccination card or something similar to that. Have you, as a city, yet flirted with vaccine passports or other mechanisms that might potentially be more reliable than a rather flimsy piece of cardboard or a photograph of said flimsy piece of cardboard? You know, we have not talked about San Francisco having its own, you know, version of New York's Excelsior Pass or or anything like that. We do know that there are private companies and, and others who have been working on these. And so what we're trying to do is evaluate which of those would also be acceptable for uh, businesses to use in San Francisco, for instance. The state also, it's not a full vaccine passport, but what they have done is they allow people to access the state immunization registry and get on their phone a QR code and also uh, their name and their dates of, of their vaccinations. One of the topics that is widely discussed, but is not so widely discussed in the media, is the possibility of people falsifying vaccination records, right? I mean, in the world of things that are hard to copy, and there are many in our world, your vaccination proof is not one of them. So somebody who wanted to spend 10 minutes falsifying proof of vaccination presumably could do that extremely easily, and there would be absolutely no way for anyone to tell if that were the case or not, to say nothing of the person that a restaurant puts at the door, you know, the greeter whose job is now now includes not only being nice to you and telling you how long the wait is going to be, but also checking your, your proof of vaccination. So given that, how much of what you're doing is sort of a signaling function to try to send to the public the feeling that you in San Francisco really expect people to be vaccinated? How much of it is you just calculate that people are so moral that they would never lie about such a thing? How much you calculate that people can't be bothered to do that and it would just be easier for them to go and get vaccination than it would be to mess with a PDF? What's the, as it were, actual thinking behind this, if you're willing to share it? Sure. Yes. I think that 
<clears throat> the way I have always thought about it, the, the health orders themselves are not enough to, to make the full impact. The health orders are important, but they're not, they're not sufficient. So the way we have always addressed this in San Francisco from the beginning is to be very uh, visible, to, to make sure that we put out reasoning, that we share the science. And I think we're fortunate to work in a city where people are responsive to hearing about the science. They don't doubt that the virus is real. They don't doubt that vaccines work. So addressing really the, the importance of doing it for their own individual health. And then the, the health orders are important in, in driving up the understanding and the demand for a vaccine, for people to understand that it's expected, that it's required. But this is the most important thing that they can do and that this is going to have the most impact over time. So it's using this as another opportunity that gets a lot of attention. People are very focused on the vaccination mandates. The, the truth is we have the, the highest rate of full vaccination you know, of any city in the U.S. So the, the incremental uh, increase in this is important. We want every single additional person to get vaccinated that we can. We have to marry that, though, with explaining why it's important. And then most importantly, we have to have uh, highly accessible routes for vaccination in the city as well. The health order alone is, is not perfect, as you said, but in my mind, the goal is not for it to be perfect. It's really to add cumulatively to all the work that we've been doing around increasing our resilience and our response to COVID-19. I think that you know this requirement for vaccination in public spaces is the is the most recent vaccination requirement, but it's not the only one. It's not been the first one that uh, we actually put out as a health order was related to higher risk settings, settings in which the people that are within those settings are at higher risk for either severe illness or death. So that includes our acute care hospitals, our nursing homes, our jails. And so that was the first place where workers were required to be vaccinated. We do have an, an indoor mask mandate um, as well. So we've had that since the beginning of the month. And so we have both now. We just have this newly implemented vaccination requirement in these certain public businesses, as we talked about. But we do have in all indoor spaces a, a mask requirement as well. I think that the Delta variant had introduced uh, enough level of uncertainty to, to not be sure, even with our highly vaccinated city, what was it going to mean for our hospital system? What was it going to mean for people that had already been vaccinated? That we just determined to do the mask mandate first because it could be implemented very quickly and we had done it previously and then work on this vaccination uh, requirement. So going forward, what we're going to have to see is keep looking at our case numbers. They are coming down slowly and we'll have to see if that continues and decide how we move forward. We are going to have to learn to live with COVID-19 in San Francisco and elsewhere. But for now, we do have both of those measures in place. Let's talk about the formulation that you just used, which is one that I think is very important, the we're going to have to learn to live with COVID-19 formulation. And I'd love to hear in more fine-grained detail what you think that living with is going to, to look like. Let me make the con question concrete in the following way. You've got great uptake at 80% or so of eligible residents getting a vaccine. That's amazing. Let's say you got to 95, right, which is as close to perfect as anyone's going to get. And let's say the Delta variant still existed because it's still going to exist, although perhaps it will have burned itself out in this latest round, but it or other things like it will be back in the future. This doesn't seem like it's some outlying evolutionary development. It's a kind of to be expected and, and doubtless will be recurrent in various ways. We'll have to learn the names of lots of other Greek characters beyond Delta. So 
in that environment, does living with it basically mean that we would move towards a world where no mask requirements and we would just understand that there was a certain amount of breakthrough infection that was going to keep on happening in the light of future variants? And we will try to manage that. And if it requires building more hospital beds to be prepared for those potential surges, we'll, we'll do that. Is that sort of what you're picturing? Well, I think what we what we'll picture is again continuing to take in any new information, you know, and as you pointed out earlier, this virus has done nothing if not keep throwing curveballs and we have to adapt to to what we might need to do. Like we were not talking about masks early on in the pandemic and that was not in our culture as a country before as it was in some other Asian countries, but it is it is something now. Are we going to have to mask completely going forward? I, I don't think that that's likely. But I do think that people may choose during cold and flu season in coming years to wear a mask. Hopefully people have a sense that if they're sick, they stay home. So there are some lessons, I think, from COVID-19 that I hope do continue past this current time. And I do think that there will be other uh, challenges, potentially, as you said, other Greek letters maybe maybe coming at us. And then we will have to adapt you know, over time. So what I'm hopeful is that we'll get a high level of vaccination, that that will continue. We'll understand if and when we need to continue having boosters of these vaccinations. And then if we need to adjust further, we, we'll have to adjust. But I do, I do think that we will eventually be able to peel away some of these other non-pharmaceutical interventions like masking. And we've already peeled distancing away and have the vaccine really, really hold the bulk of the, of the work for keeping uh, populations safe. And, you know, as a health officer, we're working at a population level. So we do know, unfortunately, that there still will be people that get infections and get sick. But what we're trying to do is really make sure that the bulk of the, the population is protected and that everyone has as much information as they might need to make decisions. But for right now, as we are working to get all of our populations as vaccinated as we possibly can, we don't know where we'll end up with that. This, these are the additional protections that we want to have in place using the power of state law, the health officer authority to be able to do that for the moment. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA member, FDIC, copyright 2024. JPMorgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity. 
giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Where does rapid antigen testing, in your view, fit into this series of different measures that you're engaged in? I got my first uh, wedding invitation post-COVID today that noted not only that they wanted people to prove vaccination to attend the wedding, but also that they wanted people to get a rapid antigen test that day, not even a PCR test, you know, in the previous 36 hours. And I, you know, thought maybe this is the new normal. There's an expense question, of course. But when you think about the various components of a preventive plan, testing surely is one of them. Prices have come down, although not as much as one would have hoped thus far. So how does testing fit into the picture? I mean, I think, to put it another way, had we been discussing this at the beginning of the pandemic, before vaccines were available, a lot of our conversation would have been, and indeed we did these conversations on, on Deep Background, you know, the centrality of testing to a successful regime and the mechanisms that can be undertaken to make testing more efficient at scale. And yet now it doesn't seem to be as central to the, at least to the public health conversation. I think you're right. You're absolutely right that testing remains really important. When you think about schools, which are opening soon in a matter of days, we still don't have authorization for vaccination for under 12. But for 12 and over, is San Francisco in its public schools requiring vaccination universally? You know, in San Francisco, our schools opened last week. It was very exciting because uh, we had not had all of our schools open uh, during the last year. And and so they're in, we're encouraging them for 12 to 17, but they're not mandated. And the San Francisco Unified School District is a, has a different governing entity. They don't fall under the mayor um, and the rest of the city department. So we work very closely with them, but they have a different decision making and, and policy approach and independent of the rest of the rest of us and independent of, of health officer orders um, as well. They, they make decisions there. So they are supporting 12 to 17 year olds and the rest of the city, our health department is working closely with the Unified School District to be able to do that and have there be events where entire families can come, where we facilitate vaccine and we'll have increasing sites, numbers of sites on school property to be able to get vaccination. But we're not requiring it yet. That was such a beautifully diplomatic answer that I almost don't want to draw attention to how diplomatic it was. It's a reminder that being a public health officer of a city is not dissimilar from being you know, an ambassador to the United Nations or something. You have to be careful in, in what you say. Let me try to parse it. I mean, what I heard you say is that the schools don't answer to you and they have a different policy. Without stating it, the natural implication, I won't ask you to confirm this or deny this, but the natural implication might have been that you might have reached a different decision if they were within your decision-making authority. Let me use that to ask a further question. You know, across the country, this is going to be replicated at a much greater scale, right? I mean, even within a progressive city like San Francisco, 
it's clear that there's some nuanced difference between different agencies at the county, at the city level, at the level of the education system. And nationally, we've got a huge range of variation, all the way from where you guys are to, you know, the governors who prohibited, even not just governors, but there were state laws passed, signed by governors, that prohibited mandatory masking. So the, the other very, very grave extreme. When you think of this, not just in your role in San Francisco, but you know, your role as a national leader on questions of public health, are you worried about just the range, just the huge disparity of viewpoints that we're getting from governmental elected officials on these matters of life and death? You know, these are, these are matters, as you said, of life and death. These are public health matters. These are scientific matters. And it really has been troubling since the beginning of this pandemic, how there had initially not been a national response. You would think that when there was a pandemic, that there would be a coordinated response, that CDC would be at the forefront, and that we as, as local health department leaders would be responding to the same stimuli and not, not really trying to do our own thing and come up with how we were going to get PPE and how are we going to do testing and what was our approach going to be. There's, It's been better more recently, but I think that that set the precedent for there being such a diversity of opinion. And then this uh, whole way of thinking that masks were a sham, that the virus itself was a sham, and, and the politicization of the response, of the science, of, of the health officials many of whom my colleagues in California have received threats, have really been unduly harassed for just trying to do their jobs and save lives. So there is a lot there, and it is really concerning. Last question. We mentioned the terrific rate of, of vaccine uptake that the city has. Are there measures that you have of what those numbers look like for people who are not just poor, but are actively homeless in the city? And do their numbers look comparable to the general population in terms of vaccine uptake? I don't know if we can we can pinpoint the, the exact numbers. We do know that they are generally lower than the general population. But what we've tried to do is make mobile vaccination available, allow people to to drop in and get them at the sites where they get their usual services or care. And we right now have mobile vaccination teams that are uh, going out to work with persons experiencing homelessness. So they, they, they are a priority. And we do recognize that we're going to have to try different strategies to increase those rates among those populations in San Francisco. And have you gotten, broadly speaking yet, the criticism from the, the civil rights community that would be, might be worried that given differential vaccination rates when measured by socioeconomic status or by race that a public vaccine mandate could look like it involves the turning away of a disproportionate number of people of color. Because that's, you know, obviously from a straightforwardly ethical and legal perspective, that's a, a grave concern. I, I agree with you that that is a, a concern from a moral and an ethical standpoint, let alone the, the legal risk. And we have, again, worked with community leaders and asked them to, to help us really reinforce the importance, again, make the vaccine accessible. We wouldn't have done a, a mandate without a feeling confident that we have worked with informed community, really tried to, to do that from the beginning. So it's an ongoing, it's got to be an ongoing communication effort. It's got to be an ongoing support effort with community. And relative to other cities, San Francisco's populations of color are more highly vaccinated than other areas. 
So our Black African-American population, 65% vaccinated right now. That's not as, as good as our overall percent of 79% of eligible, but we, we're working on getting there. That number is higher than it used to be, and we're going to keep working until it can get higher yet. It's a fascinating problem. I mean, I, the, the law professor in me immediately pictures the scenario of a disparate impact civil rights lawsuit that says, you know that 65% of African-Americans are vaccinated in the city relative to 79% of the general population. Therefore, you know that this ban will have a disparate impact on access to restaurants, fitness centers, and so forth on the basis of race. And in other contexts, the progressive position in general favors looking at disparate impact independent of uh, discriminatory intent, right? The standard progressive position is we don't care how good your intent is if the law has a disparate impact, that's a prima facie reason to treat it as unlawful, unless a really good justification can be offered. And your case may well be that. And the conservative position is typically, no, we're only interested in intent when it comes to discrimination. We ought not to look at disparate impact. Presumably in this case, the positions would end up being something reversed, right? I mean, it's, it's very clear from everything you've said that your overarching goal is public health, that you have no interest in any disparate impact. In fact, you wish it didn't have a disparate impact on the basis of race. But it's a really tricky situation when conceptualized in those terms. Yes, I I agree with you. And I think, you know, in public health, like in all public policy, there's no absolute right or wrong answer most of the time. There's just trade-offs. And so again, what we have committed to doing, what I've committed to doing as health officer is really to work with populations and, and try and communicate the reasoning communicate what's coming to make sure that all the stakeholders are aware and then uh, trying as much as we can to say, look, this is also to protect the communities of color that are working as wait staff, as barbacks, as other people who are in the gyms to increase the safety at their place of work as well, because they, they have to have that income, they have to keep going to work. So there are multiple ways at looking at this, as you said, complex. Susan, I really want to thank you for your time in describing and engaging with me about these policies and and how you're thinking about them. I really value your insights into what the new normal might come to look like. And I also want to thank you for your very intense work over the last couple of years in an extraordinarily important and influential position. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed talking with you. We'll be right back. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. 
The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Listening to Dr. Susan Phillip It struck me that we may be closer than we think to ascertaining what a new normal is going to look like, even in the aftermath of the Delta variant. That is, requirements for vaccination, at least in places across the country where large numbers of people are vaccinated. Not every place is San Francisco, and many places would lack the political will or the number of people who are vaccinated for vaccination-proof requirements to be implemented. Nevertheless, if they work in San Francisco, they have the chance of becoming a gold standard. Simultaneously, masking requirements, which San Francisco, like other big cities, has reinstated for unvaccinated people, may become an ongoing thing in places where vaccination numbers are lower and where there is a public health will to protect people. San Francisco represents only one possible direction that we might end up going. Across the country, there are lots of locations where we don't have mandatory vaccination rules, where we don't have mask mandates. And indeed, we have plenty of places where state legislatures and governors have outlawed mandatory masking. So it emerges that our new normal may be highly bipolarized, with very different practices in the most progressive places than in more conservative locations. As this new reality continues to emerge, We here on Deep Background will continue to cover the question. Returning to COVID, as always, when there are new developments, new norms, and new practices that deserve your attention. Until the next time I speak to you, breathe deep, think deep thoughts, and at least if you can provide proof of vaccination, go ahead and have a little fun. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you like what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.